Oh, yeah. Welcome. I got this weird-looking balloon here. We're going to get to that in a little bit. I'm excited you guys are joining us. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. We're going to do this. It's going to happen. This is a thing. Um, we had this idea. Every, so, like, there, if you've been here long enough, you'll notice and recognize that we have a rhythm of kind of topics and themes and things that we're going to hit through preaching and through teaching on Sunday night. And, I mean, relationships, right? Just did a dating series in the fall. I think it went well, but I can say that because I've been married for 10 years. Um, So, do you need advice on dating? Go ask Brennan or look up the series. Ask Landon, too. He's just up here. Landon, thanks for venue hosting, brother. That was great. Appreciate you. Um, And one of those things that we also preach on is apologetics. And apologetics is really important. Not only for us as, I think, college students and young adults, as we just are trying to figure out how to navigate life, I, I love doing young adult ministry because a lot of the time it's your guys' first chance to fully commit to your faith or even figure out what it looks like to have your own faith. You're defining it, you're looking what, finding out, figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus. And with that comes a lot of questions. With that comes some questions that we can't answer well or don't know how to. And so we need to have, or at least need to start the practice of what we call apologetics, which is just this, it's giving a defense for or having an answer to support why you believe what you do. Giving a defense for or having an answer to certain questions that people will ask for the rest of your life for why you believe what you do. I think it is incredibly important for us as followers of Jesus, as people who are committing our lives day in and day out to bring glory to God, to, to say that we believe even in a God, to understand actually what we believe, why we believe, I think it's really important that we don't just have a blind faith. That we're not walking through this life and through relationships, not understanding why we believe what we believe. And just this last week, we did a podcast. We have a podcast. I don't know if you guys know about it. We, we do podcasts. Don't know if it's good, but we do it. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're in like the top 500 of, any, of all Christian college young adult podcasts in the universe. So I'm proud of that. Definitely in the Midwest. Definitely in Brookings, for sure. But we just did like a preview series. And the series we're doing is called True or False. And over the next three weeks, we're taking a look at three specific statements and seeing, okay, is this true or is this false? What are the things we need to know and understand? And I got the privilege and the honor of being able and having to tackle the science opposed faith. And automatically, I think, heads start going. Automatically, I think you think of, if you've had conversations of science and creation and atheism and what is an agnostic and all the things. And for me, I can't say I don't care because that's not true. There's something about the realm and world of science that just, I don't have the intellectual capacity to understand. (laughs) And I married a PA who loves science, who would come home during grad school when we were in the cities and try to explain to me these amazing things she learned about the human body and then show me on my body. And I was like, I'm good. <laughs> I think if you want to do stuff, to the, we're not going to go that way. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> She's for sure watching right now. She's going to comment on, you should go back at some of these and just see comments on the Facebook post like, you're an idiot. <laughs> we love each other. But apologetics is important. And so for me, it's like, I don't 
understand science. It is tough for me. Like, I, I experience God in a way that is different from my wife. She looks at nature and, and she, she <laughs> is going through her anatomy classes and, and, and she sits in our basement and reads these thick dermatology books that have the worst pictures on the cover. She's like, look how amazing this skin is. Like, I don't want to see it. But for her, it's like, man, she experiences God in a way that I don't fully, and that's okay. And I experience God in my relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Like, I just experience the Father in different ways that she does, but that's not bad. And even though I don't fully understand what I'm even going to talk about tonight, my goal and my hope and my heart for every single one of us is that God would be glorified every time we gather through anything that is said and done, every time that we meet. But tonight specifically, there's not this like one big theme idea that's like, man, if I can get this home, they're gonna awesome and leave, take it, great. The reality for me tonight is that I just want, because this happens to me and this happened to me this week, I want our view and our picture and whatever image we have of God to be greater when we leave than when we came in. That is my desire for you. Not so you can have a bunch of answers, so you can go to your professors and say, well, this is why what you say is wrong. Sorry, that's weird. But it's important that we have a defense. It's important that we have some sort of answers or at least are willing to pursue finding out those answers. Jesus did this. Apologetics is important because Pharisees and Sadducees would come to him, teachers of the law would come to him and ask him questions. He had a defense ready reasons for why he believes what he believes. This is in scripture in 1 Peter 3.15. It says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And he says, but do it with gentleness and respect, not aggressiveness, not looking to be argumentative. See, apologetics should teach us to be good question askers, but even better listeners. So as we go through the next three weeks, don't desire to have an answer to the tough questions that we're gonna cover the next three weeks. Have a desire to be able to allow your image and your picture of who God is to grow. And in that, as you get reasonings for why you believe what you believe, as conversations happen in your life, not only this week or this semester or while you're in college, but afterwards, be thankful that we get to have actually answers for some of these big, tough questions, but always have these conversations in gentleness and respect. So true or false, science opposes faith. Don't know why there's a question mark there. That's on me. True or false, science opposes faith. And what I want to do for the first half of the sermon, don't know how long that's going to be. Time is not a thing right now. What I want to do for the first half is try to, not to even convince you, but hopefully give you an understanding of what I've come to realize, that this is actually the, a bad question and statement. Because it doesn't come, the conflict isn't about science versus Christianity, and I'll get, to, I'll get to that in a little bit. But I want us to understand, okay, there came to a point in the history of modern science and in the modern world of why we started having to have debates and figuring out and all of a sudden started to clash between science and faith or specific, more specifically for us, science versus Christianity. Man, when I was in college, we had a lot of different debates and things that would happen in the union where people would come in and be atheism versus creation. Does God exist or does not God not exist? And they would fight and they would battle and they'd do all the things. 
And even in my own conversations where science has been brought up or the idea of does God exist in creationism, science for me has always been the enemy of faith, but that's not the reality. Science is so much greater and so much bigger and can be accepted in ways within our faith that I think actually bring about encouragement. So real quick, the history and relationship between science and religion. Science, just simple by definition, is the practice of going about looking at the physical and natural world and then through observation and experimentation to see, okay, how do things work? Or what happens? So it's looking at nature, the world around us, and in observation and, ex- and experimentation, says, okay, here's how things work. What we don't understand is that science and this practice came out of Western Christianity. You see, in Christianity, we don't believe that the world that we live in is a divine thing, right? We don't believe like this world is, is something that should be even in and of itself praised, but the world is something that was created. It's a rational place that is open to exploration and discovery. And from 1500 to 1800, for 300 years, Christians pursued and pushed into the realm and area of all sciences. Because what they were doing is they were recognizing, they had these questions about already, which what scripture answered about the meaning of life, the purpose of life. Where do we come from? They already had the why. And so as they looked at the natural world, they said, man, some of these things actually help explain the why behind our faith. And so they started pursuing science. It wasn't until recently, in the middle actually of the 19th century, that the idea of a warfare between science and religion became this type of invention. It's a myth carefully nurtured by secular thinkers who had as their aim the undermining of the cultural dominance of Christianity and wanted to replace it with naturalism. Naturalism being this thing where anything outside of the natural world is not real. And we can perceive and, and get truth through science and science alone. So all of a sudden, then, within that, especially in the last hundred years or so, we had this thing called new atheism come out. And the new atheists, and maybe you've heard some of these names, you got Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, um, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens is a big one, uh, have told us that the big conflict when it comes to science and any type of faith or religion or Christianity, the big conflict is that those two are always at war and battling each other. When that's a problem because the conflict is not one of science versus God or science versus Christianity or science versus faith. The conflict is one of philosophy. It's one of worldview, which means this is how I see the world. It's not science in and of itself versus Christianity and faith. It's as you take what science give us, the facts that have been laid out, you interpret that evidence and how, that, how you use that evidence gives you a specific worldview and how you see the world gives you a specific philosophy. Naturalism is a philosophy. It's a worldview that says anything outside of nature is not real and science gives us truth. Where we would say, okay, theism or to believe in a God is a worldview. And on the back, what end up happening, and, and because it's a battle and a conflict and an argument of philosophy and not science as a practice versus Christianity as a belief, we've had this conflict for thousands of years. And even going back to Greek philosophy, two specific worldviews have always been clashing with each other. 
The first worldview is one, again, like I said, naturalism, but also materialism. This is where atheists live and, and, and have their home. It says that matter is all there is and there's nothing more. Anything outside of matter, not real. And then the other worldview, which is where you have the writings of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, Greek philosophers, say that there's matter, right? Because we're here, like this is, a, this is a thing. We see the physical world and the natural world, but there's also a transcendence. Like wh- why do we have trouble with the natural world explaining free will or with the natural world explaining love or freedom? Because it can't. So there's something more. So you're in the realm of matter is all there is. It's only physical, only natural, or this material universe, which we believe because we're living literally in a material universe. And there is more than what can be seen and measured. There's a transcendence. We call that God. God cannot be measured. He cannot be quantified. He cannot, even though we try to, be put in a box. So he's transcendent. There's something bigger. There's something more. And ultimately why it's not science versus Christianity, why it's something bigger than that, it's philosophy, is because as you look throughout the last couple hundred years, there's scientists on both sides, right? Scientists on both sides. You got Stephen Hawking, who's a physicist, like one of the, probably the most renowned physicists in the world, very well known. He's an atheist. But he also got a man by the name of William Phillips, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for Physics, and he claims to be a Christian. The argument and conflict is not science versus God, science versus Christianity, science versus faith. The argument and conflict is one of philosophy. Do I believe that all of the answers can be proven and seen in the natural world and matter only, or is there something more that is with us in this world? And I want to go through three specific, what I think are problems, but what the opposites of me, of, of atheists and naturalists would say are reasons why they push towards this argument of science versus God, science versus faith, science opposing religion. Three reasons that I think they still push that today, and they've done a really, really good job of pushing that as their agenda but I'm going to say that's their reason that I think they're really big problems. One first problem is there's a misconception of God. So anytime that I've had a conversation with an atheist or, or with anyone who even comes against in any type of way my worldview that I believe in a, that, that we were created intentionally by a being who I call God, who we as in Christians say it's God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every time there's just a misconception and a misunderstanding of who I believe God is and who they believe God is. So they think that as someone who believes in a transcendent being, that that God is a God of the gaps. And here's what I mean. That's like, because you can't understand and articulate why this thing happened, you just say, oh, it was God. And that's enough. It's a God of the gaps. And they don't have a bad argument, but it's not fully true. And here's what I mean by that. Anyone heard of Thor? No, just me? Amen, right? Okay, good. But, but this gr- Greek mythology, like any type of God that has existed and been brought up, like Thor is the God of what? Thunder and lightning. 
Because at the time, there wasn't science to be able to help us understand what is thunder and lightning. Don't know. It's super scary. I saw my friend just get hit by lightning the other day. He's like the only one that I know, but he did and he died. It's freaking like maybe God hated it. Oh, there's a God. God created it. Can't explain it any other way in the natural universe and world. So God must have done God, There must be a God that's doing it. So he says Thor. But as time goes on, science is a thing because it's the pursuit and practice of looking at the natural world and physical world saying, okay, how do things happen? And we say, okay, thunder and lightning can be explained. So therefore, okay, Thor is not a thing. Sorry, Marvel fans. Thor is not a thing. There's a misconception of God, but we believe as followers of Jesus, our God is not a God of the gaps. Our God is a God of all things. And so immediately there's a problem with this science versus Christianity debate because there's a misunderstanding and misconception of who God is. The second problem is a problem of explanation. And I I feel like I'm going to screw this one up, so I apologize. (laughs) I'm going to do the best that I can to try to explain this. You see, science does explain some things, right? We just know that. It's very obvious. Like I just said, thunder and lightning. Law of gravity. Law of thermodynamics. Science explains things. It does give us some truths, but it doesn't explain everything. There's a certain level, and it comes to a point where science doesn't give us all the, the whole picture and the big picture. So law of thermodynamics says that once you put a pot of water, right, onto a stove, you turn it up, at some point when it hits 100 degrees Celsius, water's gonna start boiling, right? It's like, okay, water starts boiling. That's, that's a law that has been put in place. It's a law of thermodynamics saying that as soon as water hits 100 degrees Celsius, boom, it's boiling, it's moving. And what happened in the naturalistic and atheistic worldview is they said, once we figured out the law, they took a leap of faith and said, we don't need a reason behind the why. But I would say, well, if I put a pot of water on a stove and turn it on and it starts boiling, it's like, the reason is because my kids want a mac and cheese because that's all they'll eat. So once we have a law, like a law of thermodynamics saying as soon as water hits 100 degrees Celsius, It's not automatic that there doesn't need to be a cause or an agent. I'm the one who put the water on the stove to be boiled because my kids were hungry and if they didn't eat immediately, they were going to freak out. These explanations of law and cause or law and reason don't contradict each other. But naturalists have taken a leap of faith And they've excused, as soon as we have a law, as soon as we can define and tell you, okay, here's what happens at this moment, we don't need a reason or a cause behind it, which I think is a leap of some sort of faith. They're trusting something there that can't fully be explained. Isaac Newton created, I mean, a lot of great things, law of gravity. In this law of gravity, right, he looked and observed at the world. Oh, I was going to throw my Bible. What do I have? Which one? I mean, it's it's just, I don't know. I'm not going to go there. The law of gravity, right? He looked and observed the world around me, did some experimentations. Like the law of gravity is the reality that, okay, there's something within this world that creates a gravitational pull that if you let something go, it's going to fall around. Okay, great. I explained that terribly. I apologize, but that's just what it is. And in that, you see, Isaac Newton was a believer. And he said that when he was creating these laws of gravity, as he was pursuing science well, he expressed the desire that it might convince the thinking person to believe in God. He didn't confuse when a law was established and written up and understood. He didn't confuse that when that happened, 
that we didn't need an agency or cause, which is what has happened with Dawkins and Stephen Hitchens. Just because we discovered a law, it doesn't magically go against the existence of a cause who created that same law. So it's a problem with explanation. They take the scientific facts and they go from what is seen to be proven and say that's all we need. We don't need a why behind it. And we would say, law of gravity is great. It's real. It's proven. It's there. Law of thermodynamics. Okay, I get it. I understand it. It's there. What's awesome is that we know the God who created those things. And it actually helps us point to him. Last thing that I think the new atheists and naturalists do, and why there's a problem with the science versus Christianity debate, is that they redefine faith. And how we define faith. They say, oh, faith is a religious word. It's a word used where you're believing something without any type of evidence. They would say that a Christian is someone, by definition, who believes without evidence. In reality, that's not how we define faith. I am not a Christian or a follower of Jesus because there's no evidence. Some of that evidence is scientific. Some of it is experiential. Some of it is historical. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because there's historical proof and eyewitnesses that it happened. I don't have a blind faith on why I believe what I believe. I don't believe in a God of the gaps just saying that, well, this must be God because I can't explain something. My faith is not a belief without evidence. My faith is a trust and a warranted belief because of the evidence that I see, because of what I've experienced in my life, because of the history of the church. So ultimately what we need to get to is not trying to push into this science versus Christianity and science versus God conversation. The conversation should be around where does science fit best? Richard Dawkins would say, okay, science fits best in naturalism. As a Christian and a creationist, I believe that science fits best in theism, meaning that I believe in a God and a transcendent being. Science doesn't oppose faith. Our science encourages it. As we look and we see how things are measured and observed and explained, there are specific evidence that we can pull out from the scientific realm and that, that world that actually point to a transcendent being, that point to a creator, that point to be God. To be clear, true science doesn't compete with God, but what science does is uncovering and even thinking God's thoughts after him. And here's what I mean by that. It's God has had a thought. In the beginning, right, Genesis 1, God spoke and created all things. It says, the earth was void, it was empty, and then it created through word and through speech. What science helps us do is not compete with the reality that God created. It helps us actually point to specific ways of what happened when God created. And there's different evidence and different arguments for the existence of God. I'm going to go through two specifically that deal with science, that realm of looking at observing and experimentation and how we see the world. Um, other arguments, if you want to look up, you want to just write these down. There's a moral argument for the evidence of God. Romans 1.19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without an excuse. The moral argument, evidence of God. There's an ontological argument, which is that God has placed within us a knowledge that he exists and that he cares for us. Jeremiah 24, seven says, and I will give them a heart to know me for I am the Lord and they will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me with their whole heart. And the next two that I'm explaining are scientific arguments and evidences for the existence of a transcendent being who we call God. The first argument is called the cosmological argument. Cosmology is the study of the beginning and the origin of the universe. It's a science, right? Not cosmetology. I I somehow got that mixed up today as I was practicing. The cosmological argument is an argument of God which takes the existence of the universe at its starting point. It it assumes that something, the universe, exists and argues from its existence to the existence of a first cause or or sufficient reason from the cosmos, from transcendence. So if you look at, this is how you logically prepare an argument. This is called logic. The cosmological argument says that all things that begin to exist have a cause to their beginning. If it exists, if it had a beginning, something caused it. The universe began to exist, therefore, the universe, that's a thing, was caused to exist. And we can use this argument because in 1929, an incredible thing happened. A scientist by the name of Edwin Hubble, telescope guy, really cool, awesome scientist, he discovered that the light from distant galaxies far away from what he was able to observe through his amazing little telescope thingy, he saw that the light was redder than it should be. And so he came to this conclusion that the light is redder because the universe is growing apart. It's expanding. Therefore, the light from the galaxies is affected since they are moving away from us. So he looked in the telescope, he saw that the light was redder than it was before, and he came to this conclusion, a scientific explained as he observed conclusion that the universe is expanding. So from there, what you could say is that since the universe is expanding and it's continuing to expand, if you go back in time, at some point there became a moment where it had to start expanding. Now this is known as the Big Bang Theory and I know it's super controversial, but it's a thing. And I, I'm not getting into, there's arguments of, of new earth or old earth and how many years. No, I, don't, I don't, really, I don't care about that. Science tells us that the universe is expanding. And this is a good, it's like this. This is where the balloon comes into play. This is going to fail miserably, I know it. But with this balloon, it's flat and it's gross and I don't even want to touch it, but I'm going to. On it are buttons and the buttons consist of galaxies. Just pretend they're galaxies. Really cool things, right? Really big. And the white balloon is the universe. As Hubble looked through his cool telescope thingy, he noticed it was expanding, so it'd be like this. As the universe expands, the galaxies get further and further away, away from each other, right? And it's continuing to expand, and it's continuing to expand, and the galaxies are getting further and further away from each other. As space itself, as the universe expands, all the galaxies in the universe grow further and further apart. Which means that if we go back to the beginning of time, at some point there was no universe that was expanding. It had to be created 
or something had to happen for the universe to start expanding. At some point in the finite past, the entire known universe was contracted down to what the scientists call a mathematical point, which they call a singularity. And from that, it has been expanding ever since. You can throw up that picture of, of the Big Bang. So here's, here's what this is saying. At some point in time, as you go back, because it's been proven that the universe is expanding, that galaxies are getting further and further away from each other. At some point, it had to begin. It had to start. And scientists call this the Big Bang. It's important to realize that the Big Bang was not an explosion in space, but the explosion of space. It was not an explosion in time, but the beginning of time. It was not an explosion of pre-existing matter, but the creation of matter itself. Scientists have yet to come up with an explanation for what started the Big Bang. I call him Father. The Bible points to this reality as well. In Isaiah, excuse me, 42.5, it says this. This is what the Lord says. And then he goes on to explain, okay, here's who this Lord is. This Lord is he who created the heavens and he stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. God gave us two books. He gave us a book of scripture and he gave us a book of nature. And both point to this reality that God created the universe and he stretched it out. Naturalists and scientists have yet to be able to explain the creation start of the beginning of the universe. It is widely accepted and known that the universe was started and created from nothing. Now, there are a lot of theories that have come out that have been disproven. Um, one is a multiverse theory. Not going to get into it. Look it up if you want to. One is literally a theory of an alternative reality where we're literally plugged into something like the Matrix. That's literally a theory that scientists have tried to come up with to try to get away from the reality that the universe has been explained. There's a big bounce theory saying that our universe bounced from a different universe and so it was able to... It, was created from another universe, but that doesn't get rid of the notion of creation or God because how did that other universe come into being and come into play? Science encourages our faith. It doesn't oppose it. There are 125 billion galaxies in our universe, in, in the visible, observed universe. And what they say is what we're able to observe in the universe is actually 1%. We're only able to observe 1%. So there's 99% that we can't observe. Is your God that big? Is the God that you come, who you're just saying is a strong God, who is the I am, bigger in your mind than observable 125 galaxies, but there's way, 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 way more. The cosmological argument. Science points to the universe having a beginning. God created and started that beginning. He spoke words. One scientist um, even said this. His name's Robert Wilson, winner of a Nobel Prize in physics. He observed the Big Bang. He says, certainly if you're religious, I can't think of a better theory of the origin of the universe to match than with Genesis, where God spoke over what was empty and void and created matter in all things. Next argument comes from scientific argument. It's called the teleological argument. 
Now, the teleological argument is often also termed the argument from design. It looks like how things are created, how intricate and, and amazing and beautiful and complex certain things in the natural world are. And because of that, we can take what evidence has been given and believe, I believe we can point to the existence of a God. The teleological argument says this, specified complexity presents or confers a certain design. Here's what that means. Specified means there's clear, short, understandable descriptions, but complexity means it's unlikely to have happened by chance. So specified complexity confers design, points to design. Design implies an intelligent designer, someone behind it. The universe exhibits this specified complexity. Therefore, the universe exhibits design. Therefore, the universe has been designed by an intelligent designer. We call that designer God. Our world is incredibly full of complexity. Within that complexity, we find incredible order. Logic tells us that order and design in the universe point to a designer. Imagine, this is, this is an example given by a lot of different people. They say, and, and I don't understand this because I don't go hiking <laughs> ever. Uh, super out of shape. I would do it. I just get tired real quick and I complain a lot. Ask my wife. Imagine you're hiking through the woods, which entails walking. That's why I don't do it. You're walking through the woods and all of a sudden, just randomly, you come up to a cabin. And, and this cabin feels homey just even from the outside. So you break and enter <laughs> and you notice <laughs> that within this cabin are specific things tailored to how you not just enjoy life, but live your life. You see on the table DVDs, and if you're a reader, books that you love to read, that you like. On the, on the, the fire mantle, the fireplace mantle, there are pictures of you and the people that you love. You look into the fridge, and you open it, and there's all your favorite foods. What you wouldn't do is assume that this happened by chance. You would go directly to the reality and to the truth, I believe, that someone intentionally made this cabin with me in mind. That's the teleological argument. It's as we look at the complexity of life, it has to point to a designer because there's no other explanation. The conditions of our universe, our solar system and planet, and all of life are delicately balanced and finally calibrated. The slightest modification of these conditions would be disastrous for life. Listen to this. This is how specific and perfect God created the universe. You see, life, our life, complex life, how we're able to live now in this moment, requires the right type of galaxy of the three types of galaxies. Only spiral galaxies, which is the one we live in the Milky Way, can support life. So there's three different kinds of galaxies. Life can only be sorted are supported by a spiral galaxy. Okay, so it requires the right type of galaxy. There are 125 galaxies that we're able to actually see through telescopes and science. Life requires the right location within the galaxy. We are situated in just the right place in the Milky Way to avoid harmful radiation. Life requires the right type of star. The sun is a star. I learned that more recently than I should have. <laughs> well, most, <laughs> I'm telling you, science is not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
Life requires the right type of star. While most stars are too large, too luminous, or too unstable to support life, our sun is just the right size and the right age. There's literally a window of of time that's been measured and observed by science in which a sun can support complex life. It can't be too young or too old. Life requires right relationship to its host star. If earth were slightly closer to or further from the sun, water would either freeze or evaporate, rendering this planet uninhabitable for complex life. Life requires surrounding planets for protection. Never thought of this. A habitable planet must have large surrounding bodies such as Jupiter and Saturn to clean asteroids and comets from the inner solar system as well as to deliver water, ammonia, and other life essential materials. And life requires the right type of moon. If Earth did not have a moon of the right size and at the correct distance, it would be uninhabitable. The moon stabilizes Earth's tilt, preventing extreme temperatures and thus creating a stable, life-friendly environment. And those are just some of the factors that when we look at the complexity of our universe and our galaxy, that everything had to be perfect in order for life to be sustained. We don't look at that and say, by chance. The evidence of that points to an intelligent design. And I'm not going to be one who says, well, I can prove that God exists. Because I don't think we can, but naturalists... An atheist can't prove that God doesn't exist. We take the scientific evidence given and we say, this is how this points to a creator, how it points to our God. And and team, you guys can come up as we close out. Here's the math behind this. Because as a naturalist, to be able to try to explain the beginning of the universe, you would say either by luck or by chance. There's a, a great British mathematician, Roger Penrose, and he calculated that the probability of the emergence of a life-giving cosmos, of a life-giving universe, was one divided by 10, raised to the power of 10, and then again raised to the power of 123. This is a number as close to zero as anyone has ever imagined. Here's, here's what, I'm going to re- relate this to us a little bit. The probability that the universe came out of nothing, that it was chance and that it was luck, is smaller than that of winning the Mega Millions jackpot. Which winning it once is a one in 300 million chance to win the mega millions jackpot. The probability of the universe coming into existence by chance and luck or just coming into existence at all is smaller than winning the mega millions for as long as the universe has been in existence every single day. One in 300 million chance winning the mega millions every day for as many days as the universe existed, that's the same chance or close to that the universe would be in existence at all able to support life. That points to a creator, an intelligent design, not by chance and not by luck. There's another incredible argument, and I'm out of time, but look up the DNA evidence for God. It's amazing. It's so beautiful, and it's so incredible. You guys can stand as we get ready to close. And as I was going through this, and not trying to convince anyone that there's a creator, like that's not my goal here. And my goal is not to say, as we look at science, which is a beautiful thing, it's the practice of looking at the natural world 
and it gives us excellent, through experimentation and observation, facts and truth. What I want to do is, say, is get to the point where we can say science isn't bad. It's actually really good. Science gives us truths. And from that, we take the evidence given and you point to a worldview and philosophy. There's a book out there called, I don't have that much faith to be an atheist. And he argues in that, that it actually takes more faith as you take the scientific evidence given to us to believe that we came from nothing, that the universe was created from nothing than it takes to believe in an intelligent design. Science does not oppose faith. It encourages our faith. And God has given us, as I said, two books. A book of nature. As we look at nature, as we look at the world around us, it is screaming creation. It is pointing to a God. And he's given us the book of scripture, which also explains some of these phenomena. It gives us the purpose of life, the meaning of life, the origin of all things. And Psalm 19 builds this and, and puts this together incredibly well. So I'm going to read this and we're going to go into worship. If you need prayer for anything, we always have people and leaders in the back ready to pray for you. But just listen to this. The reality of God giving us a book of scripture and a book of nature. It says this, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth, they pour forth, <laughs> they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one of the end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Book of nature. And then he goes right into the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, much more pure than gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The heavens declare his glory. His word keeps those pure. His statutes and precepts are good. God has given us a book of nature as we see the world praising a creator. It should encourage our faith. And as we read his word, let his word go deep into our soul, into our heart, recognizing that it's pointing us to that same creator that the heavens declare.
And that creator who made you did it purposely that he would have a relationship with you. And he proved that through his son, Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. May your faith be encouraged tonight. May you be encouraged as you leave this place. Yes, maybe to have some evidence or information encouraging you that your God exists, but more so that as you leave this place, you know that the God of the universe who spoke it into existence is for you. He loves you and he proves it to you day in and day out. Next week, Brennan gets to tackle the question of evil and how could a good God exist in the midst of an evil world? Good luck, Brennan. But in that same thing, no. We don't give these things to you so you can have arguments. We give these things to you to be able to encourage your faith. Let's worship unashamedly right now. Let us worship boldly, knowing that Jesus is good, he is King, Lord, and he is Savior, amen?